What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark Stay. And a big thank you to everyone who keeps this podcast going, including our patrons over on Patreon and our academates in the Bestseller Academy. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Plotter. We love Plotter, don't we, Mr. D? We do it's love amazing a bit of plottering. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And actually, yeah. it's so relevant today because Plotter is one of those tools which helps you organize your life. And our guest today, little preview, Mark, little preview, Margaret Weiss. I mean, yeah, this is kind of designed legend. for legend they're absolute legend but she has written a lot of books hasn't she and she's got a lot going on in her world well you know you look at the the dragon lance series and all these amazing series and books and any anyone doing any kind of series and you, you need to step back from it and get an overall look at it something like plotter is incredibly useful just especially if, if like me you've got a very visual brain and you need to just look at these things so pl uh, plotter is amazing because it's it gives you visual timelines there's a digital cork board you can use all these different templates plates and scene cards and scene stacks and you know can use custom structures it's it's just so flexible and like i say really really visual and really easy and incredibly cheap really yeah. really good value i'm gonna have to have words i'm gonna have to have words for them it's way too cheap so listen they, they get it now go. well they also do the thing that i like i'm a bit of a lifetime i love to buy lifetime software if you've never right. come across this before, folks, lifetime software is you pay once for it and then you get it for life instead of paying annually. And they have that on offer as well, which I think is brilliant. So mm. anyway, if you want to go and see what all of all the fuss is about and why thousands of authors are now using Plotter, so pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash Plotter, and that's spelled P-L-O-T-T-R, and you can get a trial and you can buy it on a monthly or annual basis or can get the lifetime which is absolutely phenomenal value and thank you to plotter for supporting the show because all sponsors we get on the show are all part of the big family that make this podcast keep going and next week folks we've got a uh, fun a fun christmas special and new year special for you ooh, we're talking ooh, about ooh. goals and like so don't miss next week as well so mr stay uh it's yeah it's we're halfway through december as we almost through as we record this is your house getting quite festive right now are you kind of late are you like us and we kind of like scrambling to sort out all kinds no i've been i've been quite organized this year actually I, we, we i've kind of got to because we're, we're visiting people so we, you have to just have to have stuff done you know uh so yeah i'm quite quite proud of myself i'm pretty much done actually That's all amazing. wrapped and ready to rock yeah that's, yeah, very that's unusual. Very, very impressive. That is mm. very, very impressive. Yeah, it's um we actually had snow uh last week, um, which felt very Christmassy, and I was all very excited, and it's all gone. It's like Aww. England. It snows for a couple of days and then it's disappeared. It's all Except gone. for the one big thing that the kids made, which was like they were roll you know how the kids like to roll mm. snow. The only problem is we've got a couple of dogs in our yard. So it was given instant eyes, but not the kind of eyes that you would necessarily select. Um, so yeah, just to warn people, you know, always wear gloves and, um, <laughs> uh, make sure the kids wash their hands when they come in. But, uh, <laughs> I think it's time to dive in, Mark, and chat about our amazing guest today, oh, uh, man. Margaret Weiss. This, I was just over the moon. When I was a bookseller, <laughs> this makes me sound so old, when I was a bookseller, uh, and it, weirdly, uh, I saw on our blog post, I've been, I've been working in books for, books and publishing for 30 years now. <gasps> was it, did you have like that. a big anniversary that was it this year no then? no I, I, yeah I, it was you know wow. September. actually no it would be in december wouldn't it because i started 30 anyway years. 30 years man and boy yeah <sighs> so um yeah i'm old <laughs> but when i was a bookseller 
the Dragonlance books, I mean, I ran the science fiction fantasy section wherever I went. I insisted on it. It was always part of the job. <laughs> and uh, these, I mean, they had their own shelf. They they were just the backbone of any good science fiction fantasy section. And the names uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman were legendary. And so when the opportunity came along for me to speak to Margaret, uh, this was a uh, this this is why we've saved this for Christmas because for me this is such a Christmas treat. But anyway, let's let's talk a bit more about it. Margaret Weiss was uh, born and raised in Independence, Missouri, uh, and uh, she took a job as a book editor at TSR. Now TSR, for those of you who don't know, is the publishing company of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, so and Dungeons and Dragons when I was at school was a kind of a cult thing it was something only oh. in fact in fact at thurfield school in leatherhead the young christians society at thurfield got dungeons and dragons banned from school because it was considered you know wow. borderline you know occult a, a, a which was ridiculous but anyway you know so it was it was always a very nerdy thing and now it's on tv stranger oh, things it's huge. bigger than ever absolutely massive it there's a massive. huge movie coming next year as well yeah. big dungeons and dragons movie coming next year but you know back in the 80s when it first happened it was uh it was still a very very it was a stranger thing so um Margaret Rice took on a job as a book editor at TSR, the people who made Dungeons & Dragons, and she became part of the Dragonlance design team. And Hickman and Weiss wrote the fantasy novels that tied in with the Dragonlance Chronicles, which are still in print after almost 30 years. And the books have sold over 25 million copies worldwide. And But there's more to come. They're writing a new trilogy, uh, the Dragonlance classic uh, series. So uh, keep an eye out for those folks. Um, and she's just a legend. And she's just she was absolutely delightful to, to speak to. So this is a, you know, a dream conversation. So we discuss, among other things, the origins of the Dragonlance series. And we dispel a few myths there. We talk about the key to successful collaboration and we talk about how she balances character and world building to create such vivid fantasy novels and we get some uh, she answers our listener questions and listener questions come from supporters of the podcast so if you want to talk to legends like margaret weiss you want to get your questions answered support the podcast because that's how that's how you get a direct line to these people brilliant absolutely brilliant so folks uh get a nice cuppa get your feet up or whatever you're doing Enjoy this amazing interview with Mark chatting with the wonderful and legendary Margaret Weiss. Margaret Weiss, welcome to the bestseller experiment. What an honour to speak to you today. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Wonderful stuff. Well, listen, we've got a whole bunch of listener questions for you today, but I, I would love to just dial back, go back to where it all started for you, because because as I understand it, you were always a storyteller. Uh, and as I understand it, it started in kindergarten where you covered for the teacher while they while they did their paperwork. Can, can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, yeah, like I say, I've always been a storyteller. Um, and um, my kindergarten teacher back in the day, this is when kids still took naps. You know, we laid on our little rugs and uh, so the teacher would put me at the front of the class and I would tell stories while she did her paperwork. And um, so I I don't remember anything about the stories I told, except I do remember, and this is what my mother told me, the teacher told her that I had been watching um, Treasure Island on Walt Disney on the uh Walt Disney's version of Treasure Island on TV. And I told the kids that from what I had seen on television, uh, except I hadn't seen the ending. And so I made up my own ending and the teacher told my mother she liked it better. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So where did, when did you start formalizing that into writing stories yourself, your own, you know, your own stories was was that at a young age and was there someone in your life was there a teacher or a mentor who said you can do this keep doing this well i started writing well i you know writing was just something that came easily to me um you know other kids could hit a ball or and i could write and i remember one 
one teacher stood out because uh, I was doing a term paper uh, and I was reading Sherlock Holmes. I was really into Sherlock Holmes. This mm. was in junior high school. And I did a term paper on, on Sherlock Holmes or a book report on Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, the other kids had turned in book reports that were about a paragraph long and mine ran to 20 pages. <laughs> <laughs> and the teacher flunked me. Oh, no. <laughs> she failed. Well, she failed me on it because she said no student could write that well. And <gasps> she assumed I had copied it. Oh, and my so gosh. my mother was absolutely incensed and went in and had it out with her. So, um, so <laughs> that was one teacher I remember. The other was my English teacher in college, freshman English. And she took me aside one day after class and said that if I wasn't majoring in English, I should be. Right. And that it was I always describe that moment like in the Blues Brothers where John Belushi, you know, the, the heavens open up and the light shines on him and he says, the band. And that's what happened to me. I realized that that's what I should be doing. I was majoring in art at the time and I was a very mediocre artist, but I realized I should be writing. So I switched my major that day. Fantastic. And just, uh, you know, took me. 10 years after that to get anything published, but I was writing. <laughs> so what happened in, in those 10 years? What was, what was the, because this is something that we hear again and again is that persistence is, is very much the key to any kind of success or happiness or contentment in, in a writing career in that, you know, people can fall at the first rejection. They can walk away thinking, well, that's it. No one wants my writing. What were those 10 years like for you? I was, well, of course I was raising a family. Um, I, and I was and I was writing at nights and on weekends. And I I found my agent, uh, a, a friend named Ray Peekner, and that was kind of serendipitous. Um, but uh, so I was just uh, I'd write something, uh, I had and send it to Ray, and he'd send it out and get rejected and. The minute I sent something off to him, I started writing something else. And I have boxes of, you know, novels that would never see the light of day. But I remember I got one rejection letter and it was from Susan Allison. And I can't, I think she, I can't remember what publishing company she was with. She's like, if she's, still in publishing and hasn't retired. She was like a vice president or something, but she was an editor back then. And she sent me a handwritten rejection letter, which was amazing because usually you get form letters, you know, Mm. and it, and it said, um, I can't use this, but you've got talent. Keep going. Right. And that really did it for me. I told her, I met her once years later and I told her how much that meant to me. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> it was amazing. really neat. That is amazing because sometimes... And, and Ray, Ray, Ray helped me too. Right, right, right. It, it, it's, it's so great that you got to let her know that because I think you know, authors very much just shooting stuff out into the void and you get those form letters back and you don't know. But as as soon as you get the slightest kind of sniff of encouragement, it really puts fuel in the tank, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Writing is a very lonely profession. You know, if you're an artist, you paint something and then you invite your friends in to see it or you get to hang it in a gallery and people talk about it. But writers don't get to do that. You know, you're lucky if your agent reads it. You're lucky if you have an agent. <laughs> and then you're lucky if your agent reads it. And then much less if an editor gets to it, you know, because I remember reading back in the 80s at one point, um, publishers were getting unsolicited manuscripts by the truckload. There were honestly trucks coming up and unloading unsolicited manuscripts. So, you know, talk about a slush pile. The idea that somebody sees you in a slush pile is amazing. Mm. And now, you know, I mean, everybody's publishing themselves. And, uh, you know, so it's actually even, I think, more difficult. Yeah, you don't even need a truck these days. There's a digital slush pile, which is um, never ending. (laughs) 
let's talk about the genre that that has has made you famous, really, the fantasy genre, because we're deluged with fantasy novels now. Fantasy is everywhere, and it's even on you know TV and movies. I mean, even when I was growing up in the eighties, it was it was a very niche kind of nerdy thing. Uh, when you started out, what did the fantasy landscape look like? What was what was out there that made you think I can do this? Oh, there wasn't a lot. I mean, there was mm. Tolkien, of course. Yeah. Um, I read Tolkien in the sixties when. You know, Lord of the Rings, it started in California uh, with college students. And as they were hitchhiking all over the country back in the 60s, they brought Lord of the Rings with them. And uh, so that's where I read it in college. And there was that and there was, oh, I I can't remember a couple of others. Um, and that was pretty much about it. Mm. So I was attracted to fantasy. Well, I did fantasy and nonfiction. Uh, I wrote my first book ever published was a nonfiction book about the outlaws, Frank and Jesse James. So maybe because of the nonfiction where I had to do a lot of research and stuff, I um, I was attracted to fantasy because I can make everything up. Right. Yeah. Nowadays, when I do fantasy, I go back and research. <laughs> so it's kind of come full circle. But I think I think that's why I liked it. There was scope for imagination in it, as Anne of Green Gables would say. Yes. And I, you know, my favorite genre to read are mystery novels dating back to my Sherlock Holmes days. Mm. Uh, but I can't write mysteries because that takes a certain kind of mind to figure out the plot. And I would never believe my own plot. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Uh, I've I've also seen that uh, saw some of that your big influences were Dickens, uh, Dumas, and Austin. Can can you talk a little about how they've influenced your work? Oh, Charles Dickens, yeah. Um, probably my all time favorite novel is Bleak House, mm. and I've read it. I try to read it once a year. Um, David Copperfield, mm. uh, not Tale of Two Cities. I can't stand that one, <laughs> but. Um, Dickens, the way the way he writes characters, I mean, they come to life. Mm -hmm. And every time I read his novels, I study them to see how he describes characters. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it's just, you know, everybody knows Scrooge, you know, you, you see him in your mind. Yeah. Um, Jane Austen, probably the perfect writer, uh, her sense of humor her sarcasm, uh, just, um, you know, can't, with the exception of Northanger Abbey, I guess one, you know, every author has one in them. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I love her. And what was the other one? Dumas, Alexandra, you know, Three Musketeers. Oh, yeah. Dumas. Uh-huh. Yeah, again, read him when I was very young, I think in the fourth grade. And, uh the swashbuckling, of course, uh, but how he, uh, how he, again, characters bringing them, uh, bringing them to life, especially the melancholy Athos, you know, who is not, mm. not your typical character. Mm. Um, you know, I, I like the way he's developed. Wonderful stuff. Well, look, let's 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 go to our listener questions and and talk about uh, Dragonlance and TSR and that extraordinary, extraordinary uh, body of work that you have. I've got a question from Julian. I've got several questions from Julian Barr, who's a fantasy novelist himself, um, and he he begins with, "Can you tell us any stories about the early days?" at TSR, TSR. I've heard the first Dragonlance book was a novelization of an intense gaming session from one of the gaming modules. How true is that? And would you write a novel that That's way again? It's not true. That's an urban myth. Okay. Good, nope. <laughs> good to settle that one. Okay. So how did it all start, uh, Margaret? It started when TSR hired Tracy Hickman to come work for them. And that was in 83. And Tracy lived in Utah and he and his wife, Laura, packed up the kids, and I think it was in a Volkswagen, but anyway, and they drove from Utah to Wisconsin to go to work for TSR. Um, and 
while they were on this drive, Tracy and Laura came up with the idea of a world in which knights rode on dragons mm-hmm. to fight other dragons, evil, evil dragons. And they named the world Dragonlands. And they actually came up with the first three characters, Tanis, Lorana, and Kitiara. Mm-hmm. And when they came to TSR, Tracy presented his idea and the company loved it and they decided they would make, they would put a, uh, develop a product line based around it. And it that would include adventure modules and calendars and novels, which this is the first time any game company had ever published or produced novels that were based on a game. And so because they, and they were going to have the adventure modules would have a continuing storyline run through them, which has also never been done. Mm. Um, Because Tracy liked the idea of the heroes aiming for something more worthy than just killing a dragon and stealing its treasure and then next module, killing the dragon and stealing its treasure. Yeah. He wanted the heroes to save the world. And they could do it in a series of modules that were designed to be run like, you know, in a gaming session once a month or so. I think they came out monthly at the time. Mm-hmm. And TSR hired me in 1984. My job was to work with the Dragonlance whole world that had already been developed, that was in development. And I was to take all the storyline from these 12 adventure modules and distill it down into a plot line that would go through three novels that would have a trilogy. And so that was my job. So I met with Tracy and the game design team and the artists. The artists were developing the calendars. So I got to see this amazing art that Larry Elmore and Jeff Easley and Keith Parkinson and Clyde Caldwell were doing that went with the books and the modules. And so so I was meeting with the design team and Tracy and I fell in love with this world. Now, at the time, TSR wanted to hire an author who was like a best-selling author to write these books. You know, somebody like Stephen King or somebody. Um, But when they approached best-selling authors, (laughs) they pretty much were laughed at. You know, nobody wanted to write novels based on a game. And all this time, I was working with the novels and working with Tracy and we at last settled on a couple of mid-list authors who agreed to do it and sent them the material. And they wrote a couple of sample chapters and sent it back. And it just wasn't what we were looking for. Nothing had the magic that we, that we felt in our hearts was in this world. And so finally, Tracy and I decided we had to be the ones to write the books. And we took one weekend and I did the writing. Tracy was involved with the game world design and everything. So I wrote the first five chapters in the prologue in one weekend. And I've never done that since. (laughs) But that's how into it I was with these books. And Tracy read it and added some stuff. And we took it to my editor, uh, my boss, Jean Black. And we told her we should be the ones to write these books. And Jean said, told me years later that she only read it because she didn't want to hurt our feelings. (laughs) But she took it into her office and she closed the door. We all had these. And Tracy and I sat in my cubicle. We all these cubicles. Um, And she came back out about an hour later and she came up and she said, wow. She said, this is what we're looking for. And we said, yes, we know. (laughs) So they fired the other author. But he got to keep the advance so he wouldn't sue us. Right. And, <laughs> and Tracy and I, they hired us to write the books. But we had to keep our day jobs because I was working in the book department and I was editing other books besides Dragonland. 
And so, and Tracy was involved with the game. So we worked at night and on the weekends and, um, and we had a three month deadline (laughs) because the other author had had a six month deadline, but he used three months of it up and we had to get the book out because it was due to go to our distributor, Random House. And so we wrote the first Dragons of Autumn Twilight in three months while we were working our day jobs. (laughs) Wow. And of course, the thing with the first novel as well is it lays a lot of the ground rules, a lot of the world building, a lot of the limitations of magic systems and stuff like that for all the future novels. So was there, that must have been really tough making those key decisions if you knew this was going to, I mean, did you know this was going to run and run? No, we, we, at the time, we were just hoping, because the company was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy during all of this. Right. So we were just hoping the company would be around long enough for us to get the first that book out. But the world and all the magic systems and everything else had all been designed right. by right. the game designers. Of course. So pretty much all we had to do was just take what they'd done and translate it into, into um, the novel. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I knew, for example, that Raceland was a third level magic user. And uh, so I knew exactly then what spells he could cast as a third level magic user. I just had to make it look like in the books that we weren't, you know, rolling the dice, so to speak. Right, right. I mean, Julian's question talks about an intense gaming session. You've put that that urban myth to bed. But were you much of a gamer? Were you someone who was rolling the dice a lot before uh, you wrote the books and came to TSR? I had played Dungeons and Dragons before mm. I came to TSR. And we did actually play test Dragonlance once. Right. Uh, as I remember, or maybe twice, but at least once. But this was after everything was underway. And it was Raceland's whispering voice came out of that play test session and the character of Bapu. Tracy was our DM. And Terry Phillips was playing Raceland and Terry, we encountered these gully dwarves in Zaxaroth and Terry wanted information from the gully dwarves. So he cast a spell on one, a friendship. Well, Tracy had the gully dwarf fall in love with him, (laughs) follow him around all over the place. And that was the character of Bapu. So those two things came out of that gaming session. Um, We were playing tune because we we lived in this little town of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where TSR was located. And it was very small. And the employees for the company came from all over the place. There were some who were local Wisconsin, but some who had moved here from other states. And um, so we would all get together on the weekends with our kids and play games. Mm-hmm. And the one game that we loved to play was Toon. Uh, so that was that was the game. Because we didn't want to play Dungeons & Dragons. We played it at work. Right. Uh, so we played lots of other games. And Toon was probably my favorite. Wonderful stuff. Julian has another question. You've created all these iconic, beloved characters for Dragonlance, but they are the intellectual property of Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast, all these hundreds of books have been set in the world of Kryn by lots of different authors. What's it like seeing other people writing those characters and and you know and and sort of almost like they're playing with them? They're they're sending them off on their own adventures. What's what's that like seeing that that creation of yours come to life out there in the hands of others? Well, we knew in advance when we you know signed the contract that we weren't going to own the rights to these characters. And that was the price we were willing to pay to get our story out there. Uh, I actually, and then in later years, I was an editor um, and worked on short story anthologies and got to work with a lot of the other authors who were writing uh, some of the Dragonlance books and characters. And it was actually a lot of fun um, just to see what original ideas they brought to the world of Crin. Um, it was interesting. And if I didn't like them, I didn't read them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, very healthy attitude. Let's let's talk about co-writing. Uh, Jeff White has a question. He says, as someone who's famously co-authored many books, what do you think are the benefits and the difficulties of writing alongside 
another author? And what recommendations would you give to anyone going into a collaborative project? Well, the benefits are, you know, two people seeing the world and coming up with different views and ideas on it. And also, (laughs) because I was doing the writing and Tracy was doing game design and magic design and stuff like that, I could get myself into terrible situations or my characters in terrible situations. And I could call Tracy and say, look, you know, Tasselhoff is trapped down here and there's no way he can get out. I actually did that with Tracy once. I got Tasselhoff stuck somewhere and there was, I could think of absolutely no way he <laughs> could get out of this predicament without, I think this, the cataclysm was going to fall on him. The fiery mountain was going to fall on him. And um, so I called, uh, I called Tracy and he came up with a way to get, get him out of there. And um, my best, my favorite one though, was, at the end of the twins, when Caraman has to go into the abyss to rescue Chrysania, I think. But I had made it so that as there was absolutely no way he could get into the abyss to open this door. And I was totally stuck. I couldn't think. And I, I called Tracy, I think it was at night, and I said, look, Tracy, you know, the way we've got this written and designed, there's no way Caraman can open this door. And Tracy said, yes, there is. <laughs> and I said, well, what is it? And he goes, this is a little known fact, but Caraman always carried American Express. <laughs> <laughs> and he did come up with a serious way, but that's the fun of working with a co-author. Um, and I think the key to working with a co-author is respect. You have to respect your author and their ideas and listen to them. And even if it's something you first reject out of hand, respect them enough to seriously consider it. And uh, so that's why I enjoy working with a co-author is getting their ideas, introducing me to things in the books that I never would have thought of. I mean, I like writing by myself, too, because then I don't have to worry about a co-author. I just, you know, can sit down and write it. But then lots of times, even if I was writing by myself, sometimes I would call up my friend Robert Kramis and I would say, Bob, you know, I got this issue. <laughs> you got any ideas? <laughs> I, I I saw that you've written a couple of novels with your daughter, Liz. Now, I'm a parent, my mm-hmm. children. Uh, funnily enough, my, my son, because of Dungeons & Dragons, has started ri- writing little screenplays, which is interesting. But my daughter is a big writer. She's writing novels. The idea of writing with either of them, co-writing anything, I mean, just you know, being a parent and, say, trying to teach your child to drive is enough to bring any parent out in hives, you know, and it's... <laughs> it's so, and you talked about respecting each other. What was that experience like writing with your daughter, well, it was really fun because we were writing romance novels. We wrote right. two. <laughs> I'll never do that again. But anyway, <laughs> we had a really good time <laughs> because we w- <laughs> we had to think of these plots, you know. So we would go to our favorite Japanese restaurant and order a bottle of sake. <laughs> and we'd sit there and drink sake <laughs> and write down the plots for these books. <laughs> And then um, then I would write the books and she would write the sex scenes because she told me I couldn't do that. <laughs> so, so I'd write all the other parts and then send them to her, you know, like so-and-so and so and then parentheses sex scene and I'd send it to Liz and she'd write the sex scene and send it back to me. She told me ages later that that was really embarrassing for her to write these steamy sex scenes, (laughs) knowing her mother was going to read. But I didn't. She covered it well. I never realized. I thought she was just being very cool about it. But anyway, so yeah, it was a lot of fun. And and we still go to that restaurant. And every time we order the sake, we think about sitting there and coming up with those silly plots. <laughs> that is amazing. That's terrific. I, I again, you talk about trust, a uh, level of trust there. That's terrific. 
Wonderful. Fueled by sake. I love it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rachel Howes has uh, a question. Um, do you have top three tips to give to any aspiring fantasy authors out there? I mean, obviously, the, the, the landscape is very different to when you started out, but, you know, you're still writing fantasy. You're, you're still, um, you know, an icon in, in the genre. Uh, any three tips for uh, fantasy authors out there? I'll give you a tip, three uh, tips that um, an author gave me when I was starting out. His name was Gary Paulson, and uh, he writes fabulous books. If you ever have it, he doesn't write fantasy. He writes, um, oh my gosh, I guess like um, coming of age novels. Yeah. Uh, they're just they're just really tremendous. And Gary and I had the same agent, Ray Pinkner. And so I I had met Gary before and asked Gary because again I was just starting out. I'm not not even sure I'd sold a book yet. And he told me the three things that I have never forgotten, and I tell every aspiring author: keep reading, keep writing, and keep your day job. <laughs> Very, yes, very, very good advice. Very good advice indeed. <laughs> What's um, what does your day look like as a writer now, and has it changed over time? As you know, obviously you had a day job. You you were trying to write around editorial work, and of course you bring it. You know, you've got a family as well. How has that writing day changed and evolved over time? And what does it look like now? Oh, um, well, now. I'm a very disciplined person as far as it comes to writing. Not much of anything else in my life but writing. And I, and of course I have the dogs that I'm dealing with too. So I start, um, I write, I start writing at about 7.30 in the morning and write until about 11 with occasional breaks to let the dogs out. Um, and then, I usually stop. Eleven's a really good stopping place for me because I've discovered if I write longer than that, I I am kind of floundering. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and I uh, so I quit about eleven, and then in the afternoon I walk the dogs, and that's a really good time for me to think about what I want to do tomorrow. So in the afternoon, I'm planning in my mind where I'm going to start writing tomorrow. Um, that way, I'm not just sitting down and staring at the computer and going, oh, you know, what the heck am I going to do today? <laughs> so, and that's about it. Excellent. I write every day if I can. Right. Weekends, if I'm on vacation, because it's too easy not to, to get out of the habit. So I just, I like it to be even a, an a obsessive compulsive habit that I write every day. <laughs> Do you target yourself for a certain word count or is it just that time slot that works for you? No, it's, um, I don't do the whole word count business. Mm -hmm. um, someday, if I'm having trouble, I might be grateful that I end up with two pages. And some days, if it's going well, I might come up with 20. So it just depends on what I manage to get into that time. Excellent stuff. You mentioned the dogs there, uh, who I believe are Tika and Clancy the Hooligan. Uh, Rachel did ask where the name Clancy the Hooligan came from, if if you would care to explain <laughs> that. Well, my, my first Sheltie was Joey the Thug. And he really, <laughs> really was. <laughs> He really was a thug. He was such a character that a miniature company even made a miniature of him. So when I got my second Sheltie, Clancy had serious issues. He was They were both rescues, but Clancy had issues. And so with Joey the Thug, naturally, there had to be Clancy the Hooligan. Right. <laughs> Fantastic. We, uh, uh, just occurred to me, we haven't talked about the new books. You've got a new trilogy under the Dragonlance classic masthead yes uh and julian has a has a question about you know how's the approach to story changed since those early days how has it been coming back to this series and and how has it changed or was it like pu putting on you know a 
a comfortable pair of shoes? Well, going back to Dragonlance is always very comfortable for me. But it has changed in that back when we were writing Chronicles, we felt like we had to follow the plot line that had been set in the adventure modules. Mm -hmm. And we eventually came to realize that that wasn't the case, that the readers were developing their own plot lines when they were playing the adventures. and we were providing the characters and and incidents and events that they might use in their adventures and they might not. They just read, read the books for the books. Right. And we thought, so when we started writing Legends, we realized we could, you know, as long as we stayed within the, the structures of the world we developed, we could do what we wanted to. So that's where we came up with the idea of um, of the Legends books with Raceland going back in time. So when we came to write these books, again, it was it felt very comfortable to be in this world again and to deal with some of the same characters, but then to bring new characters in and view the same parts of the world from different viewpoints. Right. Fantastic. Uh, and see new parts of the world. Well, this is it. It's, it's just a... The possibilities are endless, aren't they? This is the joy of a of a world mm-hmm. like this. It's just you know, and it's it's kept people delighted for for generations now. You know, and uh, the reaction when we when we said <laughs> we were getting you on the show was just overwhelming. That we've got so many questions that we just don't have time to ask. I'd like to ask one cheeky question, and do not feel obliged to answer this at all. But that <laughs> that okay. that first author who turned in the book that got rejected. They got the advance. They promised not to sue. Did they go on to do anything else? Did they have a career? Did they, you know, I, I just feel feel for them a little bit because they they came this close to being part of something remarkable and, it, you know, they missed the boat or whatever. They didn't quite get it. Without <laughs> revealing too much about them, are, are they happy, Margaret? Do you know if they were happy? You know, <laughs> you know I totally lost track of him. I can't even remember his name right. now. Okay. So I have no idea what he's done. <laughs> that was a young Stephen King, and today he's... <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> Never heard from again. <laughs> no, no, whatever became of him. Margaret, it has been absolute joy speaking to you today. And on behalf of fantasy readers everywhere, I should like to thank you for, for changing everything and and making it such, you know, helping create such an extraordinary world, such extraordinary characters and bringing joy to so many readers. So thank you so much for that and long may it continue. Oh, well, thank you so much. Oh, you know, it's just authors are the nicest people, aren't they, Mark? They are, aren't they? They really are. They really, really are. I mean, you do hear that a lot, (laughs) but they're interesting people, but they're also lovely, lovely people. And um, Margaret's such a great example of of someone who's had the most incredible career and incredibly inspiring. So much to talk about. And I'd like to dive in firstly, one of my favourite topics in the world is talking about influential teachers and influential in both senses of the word yes yes, <laughs> yes, yes. we often talk about those amazing teachers who you know inspire us and tell us we can we can do things but that was a absolutely amazing story wasn't it about her 20 page sherlock holmes book review. Yes. <laughs> you knew you knew something was going to happen you know in the world of writing when she handed that in but i love the fact i love the fact that her mum had to go in there and kick up a, a storm to get to get her her recognized for what she'd done well, people people really underestimate kids and You're, the yeah. depth of their imagination yeah. and the fact i mean i can't, i mean when i was a kid I devoured books one after the other, boom, 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 boom. And I'd read a book three, four, five times over as well. You know, if I had a favourite, I'd come back to it in between other books. And I was constantly in and out of the library. So you, your imagination when you're a child is at its absolute peak. So I, I would, I mean, and my, I've seen stuff that my kids have, have drawn and, and written and imagined uh, and it's something they've kept going, actually. And weirdly, my son is massively into He's a dungeon master now. So he runs D&D games himself, which, wow. uh, I mean, we'll talk about that later when we talk about characters and stuff. But, um, uh, you know, 
kids are, are, are horribly underestimated sometimes and that their imagination is just absolutely fizzing, you know, at that age. And um, so, yeah, I, uh, I would, I would, you know, I, I don't think anyone ever accused me of plagiarizing or, or copying something out, but, you know, I do stuff and teachers would go, oh, did you, did you do mm, this? You know, mm. yes, yes, I did, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, the other thing that happened to me when I was uh, a teenager, this was when I was at secondary school, I had written, because um, I've always had very supportive English teachers. They've always been really, really good. But there was one English teacher who was brilliant. She was absolutely brilliant. But I remember turning in a short story, and I've probably told this story before, but it was a short story about, um, a breakout from a prison and there were attack helicopters and it was all action. It was very kind of, you know, action A-team kind of stuff. And I handed it in and she said to me, Mark, she said, you're very good, but why do you keep writing this American rubbish? <laughs> I was like, because I like it. Because <laughs> it was the stuff I watched. But she did, to be fair, what she wanted me to do was concentrate on character, to concentrate mm. on the fundamentals of writing. And I'm glad that she did because it allowed me to write even better American rubbish. Uh, well, I was going to say, <laughs> up, until, yeah, up until that point where you're just blowing lots of stuff up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, totally. But yeah, it was it was important. But I, And also the thing that Margaret was saying, do you remember, do you remember when kids took naps oh, in school? That took me uh, back. And we need to we need to bring that. We do back. need to bring that back. Yeah, I think yeah, kids definitely. are so wired today that trying to get them to nap it would be a major major accomplishment. But I do remember. I think it was kindergarten for me, and we used to get a little thing of milk. Do you remember yeah. those little bottles of milk? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The little glass yeah. ones with the silver silver little lids that you got, and then we'd all have to curl up on the floor and rest. And mm. it was quite lovely actually. And I know now why they did it. It's probably because the the people at led kindergarten were probably at the end of their tether. They yeah, needed, exactly. They needed a minute just to like... They, they had their that, own drink, which was exactly, a bit stronger. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, right? But I think they still do it. If anyone's listening in Scandinavia, I think maybe they could update us on this, but I think they do. That's pretty common still that the kids actually have like an hour or half an hour during lunch where they all just rest. It's good for your mental health, isn't it? it is. It's good. You know, well, we, we're good. so insistent on hot housing our kids and getting them to pass exams and yeah. everything. Whereas actually, you know, the mental health side of things and relaxing and being with people and resting your brain and going home refreshed, that's just as important. Well, here's something to think about. Google have this day a week. I don't know if they still do it now. They might be like getting people to work full time now, but they have people a day a week where they say they have a, a day where they I can't remember what it's called, like dream day or something where they, there's like areas within the company, but hammocks and chill out rooms and they get people to go and like, like just, just go and daydream and think about the next big idea. And apparently so many of the major things that have come out of Google have come from allowing people just to stop well, thinking. I've, I've been to Google's London head office because they used to be one of my accounts when I was account, an account manager. And it's like a crash for grown-ups. <laughs> they've got they've got ball pulls, PlayStation, Xbox, Nerf guns. Uh, you know, there's a gym, there's a dance studio with, you know, sprung proper sprung floor, you know, all of wow. this stuff. But of course, what you realize is it's all designed to keep you in the building. You know? <laughs> so so you don't lunches. mind. Exactly. So you don't mind when you're working at eight in the evening because everything's there. But yeah, it is and, and also if you have the idea in the building then the idea belongs to Google. Yeah, and it's absolutely. Theirs, well, you know? I, I read yesterday that Elon <laughs> Musk has put beds in Twitter's headquarters. Yes, they think that? it's a code yeah. violation, don't they? They think yeah. he's probably going to have to take them out again, isn't he? Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. He's taken that a little bit too far, that idea. But um, I think it's I think it's fascinating to talk about the, um, you know, the, the fact that we also, going back to kids and, and writing, I I know every parent who who has a child who reads a lot and loves to write are often blown away by how well they write and how descriptive their words are. Um, we've all probably been there with kids if, if they've shown that. I know. I remember my daughter. I used to read her stuff, thinking, "Are you?" And I had to say to her, "Did you did you actually write this? This is like..." And it just happens like it seems to just happen magically at some point. They suddenly just something clicks and they start writing almost mm. like like it's an adult written prose as well. And I think that's probably why Margaret's teacher was, because she's used to seeing the opposite end of that as well, which is like, you know, 
the half scribbled like dog ate my dinner type um, yeah. <laughs> you know type of script so i think it's i think it's fascinating but i i, I want to just thank every teacher out there that encourages children to write and tells them that they should focus on their writing and that they they, they could one day be a you know a published author because i think those little in- words of encouragement can make all the difference because i think far too often it's the opposite isn't it far too mm. often it's and i actually found mark i was digging through some of my stuff the other day and i found my early high school um reports report cards where they used to tell you what position you were in the class. Do you remember that? It was like, you oh, know. God, um, yeah. But wait, I dug it out. Wait, and, and, and wait I, to and divide I, and conquer, right? Eh? I know. And so <laughs> I want to say hello to Mrs. Green, Miss Greenhouse. I was thinking, is she, are you still there? Are you still out there, Miss Greenhouse? And Miss Carrington and my two English teachers when I was at St. Andrews, which was the, the better school down the road from you, Mark. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> no, joking aside, uh, Thurfield was awesome as well. Um, we just had way better at uniforms. They were, they were nice blue. But, um, What's uh, wrong with bottle green? Yeah, green. <laughs> um, but I do think, I do think that um, we should all dig out our... If we and maybe Mark challenged you as well, I don't know if you kept them, but see if see if we can dig out our English, our creative writing report cards from when we were like twelve or something. I, I think, and I'm, put, I'm putting this out there to our audience as well, folks. I want I, we want just as a bit of a theme for 2023. Um, if you if you can send us a copy or the the highlight or the funniest bit, especially if you if you you know we want we want to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we'll read them out online and have a bit of fun with it. So see if you can dig out your kind of high school. We're talking early high school, like, you know, you know, you know, anything from five to maybe age 14, something like that. You'll see, you'll see a pattern in mine, which is in middle school. Mark is very good, very imaginative, works very hard. And then the second I got to secondary school, it was lacks motivation, staring <laughs> out the window. <laughs> something definitely yeah. happened to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's interesting. <laughs> I noticed I noticed that in mine as well. I started started out with a bang and then it was like, oh, disappointing exam result this year, considering <laughs> yeah. how well he did in year two or whatever. But um brilliant. Now let's also talk about co-writing mark, something we've had a little bit of it um experience in, but this is a really fascinating co-write, isn't it? This isn't just two people getting together and writing a book. This is an entire world, an entire s- series. It's but quite I, amazing. I, I love the way they work, the way that she, she talked about she would get her characters into terrible situations and then ask Tracy to, to get them out and he would get back to her and, and, you know, either joke about it or he'd think of something that she couldn't possibly come up with. And that is, there's, um, and she said, the key is respect. You have to respect them and their ideas. And to have that level of respect for another writer to sort of pass the baton like that, that's quite a... Um, that's quite a thing. That's quite an exposing thing because you've you've worked really, really hard on something and you're handing it over and going, I really hope they don't screw this up. But obviously, the, you know, they knew each other very well. They they knew what they were both capable of. They were both, you know, well-established uh, as, you know, as writers anyway. But that's um, that's a whole other level of trust uh, with your collaborators. So uh, I, I found that absolutely fascinating. I think it was also the fact that other people went on to to write more books in the series is a, is a really interesting case study in some ways because if you're that author that came up with the idea you then have to go through a process of letting go you know you have to because I'm sure I'm sure Margaret couldn't like you know say oh no don't like this chapter don't like it she had to kind of trust the publishers would 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 like do that for her but by letting go a little bit of of what was her baby in many ways maybe it helped them write more freely as well because they weren't so emotionally like all or nothing attached to it and i think um i think a lot of writers we get so uh emotionally connected with our book our story like like it's like it's our child and no one can ever you know criticize it or do anything to harm it and I wonder if it's a quite a healthy thing in some ways to have to go through that process of letting go a bit and it yeah. might actually be more freeing for the for future books. I, I guess it must have made a difference in that she's putting these characters in someone else's sandbox. You know, she's creating novels from someone else's world building. So the world was already developed. 
there were these 12 adventure modules. They wanted a trilogy of novels. So she was like, okay, we're going to, it's like taking action figures and having them play in a, in a, in a play set. So I guess because she didn't outright own the property, as it were, uh, she could have a lot more fun with it. But of course, she brought an integrity to it where she was saying, look, it needs to be more than just killing a dragon, stealing its treasure. Um, it needs to, it needs to have characters that we can, we can believe in. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I thought, I guess, you know, she's, she's, she and Tracy have done a lot of the heavy lifting in getting these characters up and running in a world that already was created by someone else. So there's already a heavy sense of collaboration there where, you know, you're working with create other creators. She was saying that she got to see artworks of people are doing concept art. I mean, how many people get to do that, get Mm. concept art for their book before? I mean, I have to raise my hand and say I did with Robot Overlords, which was such a treat. Because yeah. when we, you know, we we had the film, I had the concept art, I was able to draw on that. I was also able to draw on the visual effects shots that I, you know, the, they would send me. So I knew what color the laser bolts were and stuff like that. So, mm, so that that is a real treat and it kind of helps lift the weight just a little bit, you know. And then to write the whole thing in just three months, the two of them while also working day jobs. That's no mean yeah. feat. But here we go. Co-writing with your daughter. Now that could bring up all kinds of problems. <laughs> I mean, mother-daughter relationships at, at, at best can sometimes be a little bit kind of fun. Fraught. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but my goodness me, her daughter writing the sex scenes. That's... <laughs> well, to be can fair, Margaret imagine? said, we'll, we'll never do that again. And I can understand why. Yeah, that's... that's um, yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah. The, the um, pinnacle of my experience, Mark, with that was when, you know, parent-child relationship and sex. It was that classic moment, which everyone's probably got the story in their childhood. When I was watching, parents had gone to bed. I was watching Fatal Attraction, I think it was, on late night <laughs> ITV. And then mum, mum forgot something, comes back downstairs and walks into the living room at the exact moment. I think it's something to do with the uh, an kitchen. elevator, wasn't it? Elevator. Oh, yeah, the kitchen. And yeah, the ki- no, there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. can't remember One if that was even other. basic yeah. instinct. I get confused now, but my God, did I want to <laughs> dig a hole and disappear down it? <laughs> but this takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it, Mark? Your daughter yeah. writing the sex scenes—that's <laughs> yeah. that's leveling up. Yeah, and it's um. What do the young people call it? Cringe. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Just, just trying to think if I would do that with my mum. It's like no, no, I wouldn't. No, and we I were always very open it. about this yeah, stuff. You know, totally. mum. I remember mum giving me the Claire Rayner, you know, sex education book. There, read that. Oh, thanks, mum. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's uh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, so. Good luck to them. I'm glad they did it. I'm sure they won't be doing it again. I mean, family collaborations are, are, are always interesting uh, because. There is that extra level. And we've had couples on here before who write together, married couples yeah. who work together. And that's um, that does seem to work. Weirdly, have I mentioned this on the show out loud before? Because I'm working on something with Claire. Um, so Claire has, as you know, as part of the 200 Word Challenge, she mm. wrote a, a cozy crime mystery uh, a while ago. And she would do a draft. She would send me notes. Uh, she would do a draft. I would send her notes rather Then she'd re, re, and we went through this three times. She did three drafts and it just needed a sort of final push to get it over there. And she's been so busy this year with work and everything else. Mm-hmm. And um, I gave her some notes. We keep referring to the book as the kitchen because we need a new kitchen. Uh, so <laughs> I like the, it. the idea is, is that if we finish it if we get a nice big advance or if it sells well we might be able to get a new kitchen uh i keep saying how's the kitchen going and she's like i just i haven't had time i'm tired i'm exhausted and i said to her would you like me to have a go at it and she grabbed my arm and she said i've been waiting for you to say that so <laughs> love it i've worked on the final sort of pass on it Wow. Uh, and I'm just going to, oh, we're just going to do a quick polish between sort of now and the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, and then, then it will go out. So whether or not we'll get a publisher deal or we'll self-publish, I don't know. But one way or another, it's coming out there. And it's going to be, Claire's done most of the work. Yeah. But I've done the sort of the fine tuning and polishing at yeah. the end. Um, so it will, it will have both of us on the cover. But, wow. um 
But yeah, so there's everyone has a different way of working. I mean, the way that we worked is it was the book that never slept. Do you remember? Because that's right, twenty four. I'd be working exactly. I'd be working on it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then I'd share the document with you, Scrivener document with you. Then you'd work on it and bounce on it back to me. Although there were some times when there would be a clash and I'd be going, are you out of bloody Scrivener yet? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I'm on yeah. the train, I want to write. Um, but that works. Yeah, one of my favourite things, Mark, was waking up in the morning and opening my email to see if there was another, a new link for me to go and read the late, the latest chapter. It yeah, was, yeah, yeah. yeah, brilliant. It was like like Christmas every morning. But no, yeah, it, yeah there's, there's a million and one different ways to do it. But it's interesting as well because we've had a lot of uh, guests on the show who've talked about writing with family members, brainstorming with family members around the kitchen table, right? We've yeah, had that recently yeah. as well. And so I think it's, uh, you know, and now including family members, uh, I think we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, Michaela's like including family members in the in helping with the promotion of a book. So yes. you know, it's a family affair. I think it's brilliant. Um, so, you know, it also, it's actually a very stealthy way for anyone who's not got the support of their family. It's a very stealthy way of getting family on board mm-hmm. when they have a little bit of ownership in what in 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 what you're doing and they can claim to say you know when you do become that million selling best bestseller they can have a little bit of a claim to like oh i i was a part of that project so you know it's, it's actually a very strategically it's a very clever thing to do as well it might bring people mm-hmm. across the border and uh you know get behind you instead of telling you to get a proper job or whatever the usual things are that we hear, right <laughs> but there is so much more to talk about isn't there mark um such a brilliant interview so folks if you'd like to listen to the extended episode of this podcast if you're a supporter of the of a, your patron or a supporter of the podcast or a member of the bestseller academy um check out the extended we're going to be talking about getting positive rejections we're going to talk about drawing from classic literature and characters. And also the three tips that Margaret talked about, keep writing, keep reading, and keep the day job. We're going to delve into that. And we're going to end the uh, extend by talking about what it means to be a disciplined writer, but it's not what you think, folks. So if you're interested in finding out more about the extended, pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Give us a little Christmas present, folks, and we will... (laughs) let you in on a world of additional bonus content there's our hundreds of hours of deep dives and extended podcasts and um yeah we'll see you on the other side so mr stay rather than social media i think we should tell a little story about what happened on monday when you did a uh what we call it a one para punch up just stuck this idea out into the universe for some people in the academy and we won't talk about the actual details of it, but just explain like how something like this can trigger something potentially phenomenal with an idea that comes out of nothing. Because we were talking two weeks ago on the on the coaching um, about the value of short stories and the value of how uh, you can try ideas out. Um, but you so so describe to everyone what happened. You asked how you asked for like examples of a festive one power yeah, we, we, punch up. Every other month we have, uh, I mean, we have uh, craft coaching every month and I try and mix it up. So we have uh, what we call a one para punch up. So some people will send in a paragraph or 200 words from their work in progress and we'll, I'll read it and then I'll, I'll do an edit on it and then we'll discuss it and talk about things that might be improved and things that we like and, and have a lot of fun. And they're really, really lively sessions and they're great. And I'm always very, very grateful to the academics who send, who are brave enough to send their, their paragraphs in. And then we had a Christmas special. So I said, send me festive stuff. And it was great because it was right across the board as well. So we had, we had pagan stuff. We had, you know, more traditional Christmassy stuff. And then we had a new, t- and I'm not going to say what this is because I think that, that Someone came up with a really, really fresh take on an intellectual property that is in the public domain, is already out there, that everyone knows, but they came up with a fresh take on it. And I just thought, and I said to them, this is really strong. You should expand on this and get it out there because, uh, you know, we we were talking earlier in the extended version about what publishers are looking for and what agents are looking for. And it's like, They'll all be looking for this because this is this is a this is something that has a recognition value that's way up there, and you've got a fresh take on it. So it's worth bearing in mind if you're one of these authors. You know, look at look at stuff that's in in the public domain, 
And by public domain, I mean all over the world because there are different laws. You know, something that's in the public domain in the states might not be in the public domain over here. So, and they're all on Wikipedia. If you want to check if something is there, there are lists on Wikipedia on what is and isn't in the public domain. Um, and take you know an, an old idea and see if you can come up with a fresh spin on it, and that that will get you the attention. If you're if you're someone trying to break in. That could be a really, really good way to to get the attention of agents and publishers or filmmakers and producers and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah and it's brilliant. it's worked for me in a way that I can't talk about yet. So mm, um, I know yeah, we've been waiting you know. for a while, haven't we? We've been waiting <laughs> for a while. At, uh, watch this space, yeah. folks. There's more good news yeah, coming yeah. down the line. My goodness me. Yeah, in and fact, there's a whole episode to be done on that at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, there will be. There certainly will be. And just to say, there is no social, you know, we're in the middle of the bleak midwinter. Um, but uh, I do want to share one win uh, with all the listeners because one of our academics, uh, Michaela Limkin, she's published a book. This is nonfiction. It's called How to Love and Be Loved, Tiny Steps to Connecting with Love and Life. And she's illustrated it as well. Those are her illustrations. And it's a lovely book and great because – Christmas now, but we're coming up to what they call in publishing called the the New Year, New You season. So, you know, as soon as Christmas is done, we've all pigged out and we're all thinking, okay, New Year, I things are going to change. I'm going to be different this year and I might join an academy and write a novel and things like that. So uh, so this is very much in, in, that, in that category. But what I love about this is um, it says, this book is proud to be dyslexic friendly because at least 10% of people have dyslexic thinking. Following guidance from the British Dyslexia Association, this book is printed on off-white matte paper using a sans-serif font. It's left-aligned, not justified alignment, which improves readability. And the off-white paper helps people with visual processing issues, which isn't just dyslexic people. All sorts of people have that. And Michaela says, yes, I'm dyslexic and proud of it. And you should be, and you should be proud of this book. Absolutely. So do check that out, folks. It's amazing stuff. Fantastic. And congratulations to Michaela, who's, who's been such an inspiration in the Academy ever since yeah. she joined us. It's wonderful having you there. Brilliant stuff. And next week, little preview, folks. We've got our Christmas special coming up next week, uh, <laughs> coming out normal time. We're, Mark and I are going to take a break over New Year's. So what we're going to do is we're going to combine our Christmas special with a bit of New Year's thinking about goal setting. What do you want to do next year? Is next year going to be your year to break through as a writer or to finally do that, finish that book, whatever it might be. If you do join us next week, we're going to have lots of festive fun, but also hopefully leave you inspired for the end of this year so that you start next year out the gates. And uh, yeah, we're going absolutely nowhere. So make sure you join us a week from today or whenever you listen to this podcast and uh, and uh, pull a Christmas cracker with us and have a little bit of a joke as well I think there might be a few giggles as well so brilliant <laughs> stuff so Mr Stay have a great rest of your week look forward Cheers to up. catching up with you next week and to all the people out there who want to keep on writing and live the dream remember it can happen with the most wildest of fantasies the most classic of literatures and you know what keep reading keep writing and keep the J job for now, but you just never know. You just never know. <laughs> so it's a goodbye from Mark One. And a goodbye from Mark Two. Goodbye. Goodbye. So pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com and go. Oh, and that is spelled P-L-O-T-R-R. No. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be one of these. It's going to be one of these, isn't it? Okay. And where the time code? <laughs> but we'll get through this. Because we're professionals, aren't we, Mark? Professionals, yes. We've done this for six years.